1: Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. I'm your host, Heather Stark. I have a guest with me today who's done some interesting research, some research that really Um, uh, catches my eye because it's so prevalent anymore. We have with us uh, Emma Louise Baki. She's a PhD candidate at George Washington University's Anthropology Department and her doctoral research deals with the politics and temporalities, I'm going to ask you to explain what that means, of care provided to survivors of intimate partner violence in Cape Town, South Africa as well as the forms of restorative justice enabled or inhibited by international aid to survivors. She's a trained rape crisis advocate and a community educator, and she serves as a gender consultant in the international development and global health sectors. So that's quite a resume, lots of big words in there. Tell (laughs) us in everyday language, not academic language, what it is you do and what your research is in.
0: Sure. Um, I I wear a lot of different hats um, in terms of my research. So broadly, most of my research deals with gender, gender-based violence, and issues of, of mental health and care. Um, I spend a lot of time thinking about care. Um, and so what my research that I conduct in South Africa is basically interested in what kinds of care is, are offered to survivors of intimate partner violence. When I say temporality, uh, it's a sort of ethnographic term that I'm throwing around, in part because I think that time plays a really critical role in not only uh, survivors' experiences of violence, but also what kinds of care they are able to get access to and how much this emphasis on sort of a crisis-oriented model of care or emergency care, which we're seeing a lot right now, especially during the COVID epidemic, that that actually shortens the amount of time that survivors are able to get access to other kinds of services over the long term. So I think a lot about the role that time plays in recovery for survivors.
1: Mm -hmm. What brought me to um, your attention or what brought you to my attention was (laughs) a a paper that you recently did. Uh, It's a a meta-analysis, a meta-study of uh, uh, all of the literature that deals with cyber-stalking. And I thought, wow, here's Mm -hmm. a woman who sees the whole picture. And so I wanted Mm -hmm. you to come on the show and talk about that. Um, We've done um, brief shows before on cyber-stalking, but Mm -hmm. the whole cyber violence, the whole cyber uh, uh, world uh, is so much more comprehensive than just the stalking. What Mm -hmm. got you interested in this topic and what led you to doing this comprehensive literature review of of all the research that's been done?
0: Sure. So I think that this is, so I self-identify as a geek. One of the other hats that I also wear is I I run a blog called The Geek Anthropologist where we spend a lot of time thinking about geek culture Um, and As people might remember, or they might not know about, in 2014, there was an incident of Gamergate, um, which was essentially when a lot of video game developers, particularly women and women of color, were targeted online by trolls. Um, They were subjected to online harassment, to issues of cyber stalking. Some of them were doxxed. Many of them were hacked. and they experienced a very sort of prolonged period of cyber violence. And this was something that um, those of us in the geek community were following fair, on a fairly regular basis, but was, was baffling a lot of people who were not quite as familiar with sort of video game and that sort of sector of the world. Um, and I think from there, I was thinking a lot about what, what this form of online violence means especially because there seemed to be this, this significant disconnect between how we think about quote-unquote offline violence, so regular gender-based or sexual-based violence, and then this online violence, which was perpetrated through different means, um, through places like Reddit and 4chan, um, but, but exhibited very similar kinds of patterns and traits. Um, and Later on, many of the women who were involved in Gamergate initially, like Anita Sarkeesian and Zoe Quinn, actually came to the UN when the UN was in the process of putting together a report on cyber violence um, that was ultimately released. Um, and this was one of the first sort of big gray papers discussing the issue of online violence, but actually got a lot of flack from communities who had been most impacted by Gamergate in part because there seemed to be a lack of research or depth in terms of the ways that they were theorizing cyber violence at the time. Um, And so all of this to say, I had a internship at the International Center for Research on Women, and they were really interested in, in what the connections were between online and offline violence, and so my job was really to try to get a better sense of what was the literature out there that was being used to theorize this phenomenon. Um, what were the gaps, uh, and ideally the plan was then to use this literature review then to inform. Um, primary research that uh, the International Center for Research on Women, ICRW, then went on to conduct um, in several countries around the world.
1: Okay, so you were doing this as part of your – was it a fellowship, or um, uh, what, what was the um, title for what you were doing with that organization? Was it a, sure. an internship so I- or fellowship?
0: Yes, yeah, so I was a, a master student at George Washington University at the time, uh, and I was an intern with ICRW in their uh, violence and social inclusion portfolio.
1: Okay. All right. Um, one of the things, you know, we, uh, every field has its, its uh, jargon and its vernacular, and I, I have to always <laughs> remember that it's not just academics who listen to this, this program. So um, I want to make sure that uh, any terminology we use is something that everybody understands. Um, so you plowed into the existing research to find out what other people had found out is basically what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And you did this Mm -hmm. in order to help inform further research on the connections between online and offline violence. Am I summarizing that correctly?
0: Yes. I think the only thing that I would add is that um, so because the UN, the initial UN report on cyber violence was, so heavily critiqued online. It, it led to a lot of other organizations like the World Bank, like um, the Sexual Violence Research Institute, um, SVRI, to basically realize that there needed to be a more fulsome research process to, to really understand the scope of this. Um, and so that's, that's sort of what the goal was for my research. I will say that Initially, the plan was primarily to only look at online violence and to get a better sense of what are the terms that are being used? What do we know about um, victims? What do we know about perpetrators? What do we know about tactics? Um, What I found in the process of doing the research was that there was a clear continuum between online and offline violence. But I will say when, we, when I started the research process and when I was working with others at the ICRW team, we weren't necessarily anticipating um, that continuum as much.
1: Okay. So um, let me just give a brief anecdote. It sounds to me, sure. it reminds me of something in my past, which is many, many years ago, 110 years ago, I worked for a county de- probation department. And we had um, serious sex offenders, but we also had flashers. And the judges Mm -hmm. and the courts in general, the attorneys, they kind of laughed at the flashers. And it was just kind of a joke. And nobody ever took them seriously as far as punishment or whatever. They'd get a little hand slap and that was it. And basically they were ha-ha, you know, Mm wink-wink at the flasher. Later research proved that this actually was um, a very serious offense that led to, uh, you know, we, we, uh, you've heard of the gateway drug kind of thing, uh, and it was kind of a gateway behavior in, for uh, perpetrators who were kind of testing the boundaries of uh, appropriate acting out, and that many of these uh, offenders later on would progress to greater uh, sexual offenses. And mm-hmm. it sounds to me like when I was reading through some of your stuff on, on and some other people's stuff on, on cyber stalking, it sounds to me like this also, the cyber stalking thing, has been basically kind of poo pooed wink wink because nobody has uh, indicated that that's part of a trajectory that becomes much more serious. Mm-hmm. Is that what you what you found? Yeah, I think it's it's
0: interesting. So one of the things that I definitely found was that for all the different kinds of of cyber violence, and I tried to provide a bit of a typology, um, but this a lot of others have sort of tried to typologize different forms of violence. And one of the issues with a typology is it makes it seem as though they're discrete, but Um, A lot of the time you see sort of multiple forms of online violence happening sort of at the same time. So I talk about online harassment, cyberbullying, cyberstalking, and revenge porn. Um, Each of these sort of relate to different tactics, but more often than not, if someone was a victim of, say, cyber-stalking, and then chose to report it to the police, for instance, it was very much dismissed as something that was not as serious, was not as concerning. Um, It was clear that for the researchers who had delved into this, oftentimes police officers are not specifically trained in what cyber-stalking is, or what the proper modes of sort of de-escalation might be um, for other people who had experienced other forms of online violence who then chose to report to police. More often than not, I one of the authors talked about um, the police basically telling the victim to turn off their phone or to unplug their computer, um, which I think sort of shows a fundamental misunderstanding of sort of how the internet works and, and sort of how dependent we are on it, but also um, the inability to realize just how significantly, emotionally, people are impacted by things like cyber-stalking, um, but also how much other forms of online violence, like hacking, like revenge porn, can actually have really devastating consequences for someone's uh, education, for their housing situation, for their uh, professional life, I can sort of go on, but I, I think that you're right in terms of a sense that it um, there there still seems to be a sort of a misunderstanding of how how devastating these forms of violence can really be for people who experience them.
1: Yeah. Um, you also talk, well. You know, let's back up a little bit because again, um, we're we're not. Necessarily speaking to folks who've studied uh, cyber violence, Mm -hmm. you've mentioned several types of um, cyber abuse, if you will. Um, Cyber Mm -hmm. stalking, we've heard that 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 terminology. But you mentioned a few others. Mm -hmm. Could you go into greater detail? What what are the uh, offenses, if you will, that can be carried out uh, on the internet uh, against a, a victim, and what? do they mean? I mean, what what is the definition of cyberstalking and what are some of the other cyber offenses?
0: Sure. Um, well, so first I'll say two things. One is that one of the big findings of the meta-analysis that I did do is that there's not a lot of consensus on these terms or on these definitions. So I use the term cyber violence, but there's also, sometimes it's referred to as technology facilitated gender-based violence. Sometimes it's online violence, sometimes it's internet violence. Um, Each of the sort of forms of cyber violence that I talk about often is referred to in multiple kinds of ways. So for instance, there's cyber abuse, there's cyber aggression, there's digital dating abuse. Um, and so one of the big sort of takeaways is that we have, we have all of these terms that are being thrown around, but there's, there actually isn't a consensus about what these different kinds of violence are. And that was hopefully what, one of the big recommendations of the paper is that we need to have a better understanding of, of what these terms mean. Um, I had sort of broken it down into um, online harassment um, and cyberbullying as separate, but I think the reason that I separated the two of those was actually based more off of um, who was being written about. So when we think about online harassment, um, we usually think about someone who is receiving some kind of threat. Um, online, usually through some kind of digital interface. This might be Twitter, it might be Facebook, it might be Reddit. Um, but that is actually not dissimilar from cyberbullying, but cyberbullying uh, literature is often written about children. So it's usually youth or young adults, sort of in primary or secondary school. Um, and then we also have things like um, cyber dating violence or cyberdating abuse, um, which I think is, is sort of in a continuum with cyber stalking as well. So while cyber stalking is usually primarily referring to um, using some kind of tracking software to follow those movements or even just to follow the communication of a partner, um, cyber dating violence can um, encompass a lot more a, a sort of broader range of behaviors. This might be, for instance, sending um, sending really coercive text messages to your partner. It can also involve impersonating your partner. Um, this is often used in incidents of intimate partner violence. Um, and in some cases, cyber dating abuse can transform into revenge porn or non-consensual pornography, which is usually when a um, explicit photo of someone uh is used and posted without their consent online and so there are sort of these different um these different modes but there there is a sort of slipperiness to the terminology and i think you had asked initially about these as offenses um and one thing that i'll point out is that a lot of them are are not necessarily considered to be criminal that we actually our criminal justice system is not really set up in a way to recognize these forms of violence as as a criminal offense so it's really only been recently that there have been laws introduced to criminalize something like revenge porn
1: so there's this array kind of slippery terminology for it uh, but i guess it's like art we know it when we see it um Mm -hmm. How prevalent is this? Were you able to get from your research an idea of, you know, one in three women will be experiencing this? Is it primarily women? Um, because it seems like every time we talk about any kind of um, gendered violence right now, we have to add the caveat, men are abused too, and da 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 you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that we have to look at the numbers and, um, you know, who, who is the m- most um, targeted, males or females, Uh, Is there a particular um, – do gays get targeted more? I mean, what did did you find in your research? Is there a particular group that's more vulnerable to these kinds of behaviors, these kinds of offenses?
0: So we we found that there were some indications that um, women, young girls, and LGBTQIA individuals were – the most likely to experience these forms of violence. I think one of the tricky things is that um, because there is not as much of a consensus about what the terms are, how we define this, there are, is also not a consensus in terms of research tools to be able to document this kind of data. So a lot of the data that we have is coming out of the Global North. So these are places like the US, Europe and Australia. So We don't have as much data for um, places throughout Asia, Africa, Latin America, the South Pacific. Um, There was a Pew study that was conducted in 2014 that found that 70% of 18 to 24 year olds had experienced online harassment, um, which is a fairly high percentage. Um, I think another thing to think about is because this is something that might not be discussed as frequently, um, and if we know that police officers, for instance, are not trained to handle these kinds of reports, there's, it, it's likely highly underreported. And so the data that we do see is often coming out of academic surveys, and they're usually convenience samples of usually it's it's um, high school or college aged individuals. So yeah. well, we that, have If I can interrupt
1: that, you, that. Sure. Yeah, if I could interrupt you, uh, yes, knowing that because your uh, population sample that you're surrounded to when you're an academic is students. And so a mm-hmm. lot of research is done using that uh, pool uh, for um, uh, participants. And as you point out, although there are older students, et cetera, et cetera, the primary um, pool when you're talking college students is a a younger demographic. You mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. that a lot of the cyber-stalking, cyber-bullying affects mostly younger people, or at least that's what we're thinking, we're assuming at this point from the research. Uh, Does that then – cast a little doubt on some of the studies that have been done uh, as far as how it might apply to the general population. Um, What about the the validity? And, and, um, um, you know, does that age group of the um, survey pool, is that really going to give us a good reflection of how cyberbullying, harassment affects the general population?
0: Well, I think so. We we have some. We do have some data, sort of beyond cyberbullying. I think um, what it relies on is sort of like you said, a sort of consistency of tools in terms of are you measuring behaviors? Are you measuring um, outcomes? I think um, so. I think one of the things to to also consider here is. Um, the extent to which we are also asking the right kinds of questions. Um, And so one of the things I'd like to sort of point out is that in terms of the general population, so one way that we have seen this manifesting is actually um, online violence against journalists and politicians. Um, So we could see this, for instance, with um, the Katie Hill case, former senator, Um, but we actually know that there are are high rates of of online harassment against journalists, particularly female journalists, um, oftentimes on Twitter, um, but also it's meant that um, news organizations have had to increase moderation of comments on articles that are published by female journalists. Um, We also know that there has been a lot of forms of online violence against Um, female politicians or individuals who might be running for political office. Um, And so uh, the Women's Media Center, um, which is run by Saraya Shamale, has actually done a fair amount of of research sort of trying to track what these global trends are. Um, And then the research that I did for ICRW, they then went to the U.S., India, um, and Uganda to sort of Provide a broader sample of this. So I think we're we're still we're still trying to collect data on this in a way that that is going to be consistent and is going to be comparable across different
1: contexts. Okay, all right, that makes sense. And uh, when we're talking, you you know, the you mentioned that the terminology there's no really firm agreed upon definition for many of these terms. Um, has there been? A, did you find any? Um, particular topics that seem to generate more. It sounds to me like we're talking with kind of like two different pools of um, Mm. victims, personal victims. I'm I'm your ex-husband and I hate your guts. And so I'm going to do all this stuff or I'm a former jilted lover or whatever. So I'm going to do all this. But when you're talking journalists and politicians, I'm presuming that it's a different level of motivation, are there particular topics that seem to generate more of this behavior uh, and this reaction um, for journalists and politics or for politicians? What I'm getting at is uh, if you're a woman journalist and you write something about gender, is that more likely mm-hmm. to uh, generate this kind of response than if you're a male journalist? Um, that, so I, that's kind of a, a wishy-washy question for you, but I think you're getting what I'm asking.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a, it's sort of a, a broader question that is being posed. Of um, one of the reasons why someone might refer to this phenomenon more as technology facilitated gender based violence is that a lot of a lot of the vitriol that people are experiencing online does seem to be rooted in very particular gender ideologies, um, and so. There, there is a sense of the extent to which um, patriarchy kind of pervades all of these different spaces. I think that there, I have a little section in in the article where I talk about um, cyber feminism and the ways that early cyber feminism and sort of the 90s and early 2000s really was hoping that the internet would sort of be this this pristine utopian place where we would be able to sort of rewrite or revision gender roles. But we know that in actuality, the very same sort of attitudes regarding male bias and male privilege of um, policing people's forms of speech, of being discomfited by certain um, arguments that are being posited by female journalists or politicians, um, has actually been met by uh, the same forms of anger that it was met with by uh, when we were just in a form of print media um i think the other thing is that um we have seen a rise in certain forms of the alt-right that really do organize online um and i i have been thinking a lot for instance about the incel or the involuntary celibacy community that does specifically target women online, that these are all communities and tactics that um, manifest from very particular ideas about um, patriarchy um, that have been, been able to mobilize online and use a lot of these very same tactics, usually to attack people who are sort of pointing out these forms of inequality and inconsistency and trying, trying to cultivate potentially a more gender-equitable world.
1: So then, and Mike, forgive me for just kind of thinking out loud here. So then, is the motivation of the cyber stalker, cyber bully, cyber perpetrator the topic or the author of that topic, or can you tell it all? Because it seems to me... If I were a, a, a male, uh, for example, like they used to do in the Victorian times, you know, uh, um, J. Scott, you know, that's the, the author, so that nobody knows that it's Judith as opposed to John. Um, if mm-hmm. I did that and wrote something about uh, advocating for certain gender equality, uh, uh, advocating against the patriarchy, et cetera, well, that is that the the generator of the cyber stalking, or if I put down Judith Scott, is that uh, would John Scott get the same bullying as Judith in writing such a thing?
0: Um, I think so. One of the, the issues is that we we don't have a lot of data on perpetrators. Um, that is a very difficult thing to collect information on usually because, because the internet allows for so much anonymity, um, because we can sort of create these anonymous um, forms of communication and someone is, is probably not likely to admit to having been a troll. Um, so when, when ICRW did their research in the US, India and Uganda, they, they also created their own where they talked about motivation and I think the, the part of the reason why I broke down the different forms of violence is because I think that they are each rooted in a different kind of motivation of the perpetrator. So cyber stalking isn't always conducted by an intimate partner or a former intimate partner, but it usually is. Um, and so in that case, we would see a very different level of motivation. It might be jealousy, it might be revenge, it might be sort of feeling hyperprotective of their partner or of their former partner. Whereas online harassment against, for instance, a journalist or a politician, that's likely coming from a very different kind of motivation because there isn't as much of a personal connection to that individual and so I think in that case, it might be more of a political agenda or an ideological agenda. Um, I think it's something that we still need to, to know more about, but it's, as I said, it's, it's hard to sort of collect information because we can't just walk up to someone on the street and ask, hello, are you a perpetrator of cyber violence? <laughs>
1: And if you find that person who says yes, huh, (laughs) Um, yeah, (laughs) you'd have to really kind of question, you know, okay, do I want this person in my study if he's coming out and saying yes? I don't know. Um, Mm -hmm. Okay, so I can understand that this is an extremely complicated issue. And it's complicated by the fact that we don't know a lot about the perpetrators. We don't know a lot about their motivation. We don't know a lot about the victims because the um, incidence of cyberbullying cyber stalking cyber violence is totally underreported because in many cases it's not criminalized, mm-hmm. so you get um, a, that that kind of sets us up if you're a victim of this for I think some kind of um, mind screwing around with Stuff. If I'm a victim of this, we don't have research, we don't have knowledge about the perpetrator, we don't view it as a criminal offense, so how likely are we to have someone actually go and try and uh, um, arrest this person or correct this person or punish this person? That must create a particular kind of psychological conflict for victims. Did your research include anything about the fallout, if you will, for victims of these cyber crimes, cyber, cyber attacks?
0: Yeah. So I will say that almost every article mention sort of the mental health consequences of this. Um, you know, it, and it really runs the gamut from depression, anxiety, stress, um, feelings of isolation, um, what we might think of as post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. Um, within the cyberbullying literature, um, there is a sort of subset on cyberbully side where um, a child or a youth has been so severely bullied online that they actually choose to take their own life. Um, all There is also you know, if someone is being cyber stalked, if they feel like they are being impersonated online, there is also just a general feeling of, of insecurity and of unsafety. Um, and the literature indicates that more often than not, um, that these forms of offline violence or online violence then turn into um, forms of physical violence or sexual violence. So someone who might be cyber stalked might then experience physical stalking, which I'm sure you can imagine is extremely terrifying. Um, And within that, you then have the mental health consequences of secondary victimization. So if you go to the principal at your school, if you go to the police station, if you go to a courtroom to try to get some kind of help or protection and are told that what you are experiencing is not severe or is not significant enough or simply doesn't have a legal architecture around it to protect you, that in itself can be highly traumatizing and can sort of reduplicate mental health consequences. Um, I think that we, we don't really know, one of the things that is also still missing in the literature are sort of longitudinal studies that might track someone over a period of time to really get a better sense of, of what the mental health consequences are, but almost all the data indicates that um, it can be a highly traumatizing and highly isolating experience
1: for people. Mm-hmm. Is there much sympathy for this? If I go to, uh, you know, we can go into a, a greater discussion about uh, people being sympathetic in the long term, but at least in the short term. If I go to my friend's with coffee or whatever, and I say, oh, my car was broken into, oh, the sympathy. If I say, mm-hmm. oh, I was physically attacked, oh, the sympathy. Um, and again, we can discuss for how long that actually lasts, but at least initially, the sympathy. The sympathy. Do victims of this particular um, offense, do they experience sympathy or do they experience a lot of victim-blaming? or were, do you not have that information?
0: So part of it depends on what kind of, of violence. So um, for issues like revenge porn or non-consensual pornography, um, a lot of people who experience that find often find that they are victim blamed in part because they might be told, well, you took the image. You took the uh, sexually explicit image and you mm-hmm. shared it with someone. And so you have sort of brought this on yourself. Um, And there are really only a few um, lawyers who have really started to take on cases of of revenge porn. And a lot of that is also sort of sensitizing the court system to the specificities of this. Um, We know that because the criminal justice system is not particularly sensitive or does not really have enough adequate information, a lot of people really turn to informal support networks, and these might be friends or family, which ideally are a little bit more um, sympathetic. Um, I think the other sort of platform to consider are virtual or digital platforms themselves, right? So, for instance, a lot of advocates have talked about the moderation practices of places like Facebook or Twitter and that for a long time, um, if, you, if you want to report someone on Twitter, um, initially more often than not it was the person who was reporting who got booted off of Twitter rather than, than the person that was harassing them. And so um, even just thinking about the policies and protocols of digital platforms, um, are only just now sort of starting to be be sympathetic to I think the forms of harassment that people are experiencing
1: that's a typical trajectory though as as we learn more and find out how, more, how prevalent and, and learn more about the long term effects I think we we as a culture tend to take these things more seriously um, at first, as I say, mm-hmm. we go back to the wink wink nudge nudge of the you know um, the the Exposer, you know, uh, in the alley kind of thing. Um, but once we understand more about the seriousness of it, then I think we tend to, most people in our culture tend to take it more seriously. But sometimes that can take decades to reach that point. Mm. Um, I would like to talk a little bit about, we, we talked about the motivations, and we don't really, you indicated that that the literature is pretty bare on what would motivate a person? I think it's pretty clear in what I'm calling that personal, uh, the personal attacks. Um, you're the jilted lover. You're the the abusive ex-husband. But whatever. Um, but for these people that uh, I guess we're calling them trolls, who and and I'll be honest with you, our our web, you know, three women, three ways. We get our trolls. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'll I'll post a, a photo of. Of somebody who's talking about a very serious topic, and invariably there will be some man—I've never had a woman doing it—that um, will, you know, make uh, aspersions on that expert's opinion, uh, appearance, or something like that, um, as if they had a right to comment on it. Um, so, when you are talking about the kind of the subset of, of people who will just scan the internet, or just go to different sites, or just it almost seems like they're looking for something where they can, um, I don't know, is there any more, better understanding of why these strangers do it? Mm. Uh, you had talked a little bit about the anonymity um, that is available on the Internet. Certainly that must play a part, but, but what else do you know about those kinds of uh, perpetrators?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I mention anonymity because there is sort of a subset of of psychologists that that think that um, because people can be anonymous online, um, they feel liberated to do things and to say things that they wouldn't necessarily be able to do if they were able to be identified. Um, I think another thing that we can think about is the way that – because this, because this perpetration is not occurring face-to-face, the individuals don't have to sort of see the consequences of their actions. They don't have to witness in real time the extent to which what they're saying or doing is is harming the person that they're directing that abuse at. And, and there's still research that needs to be done in terms of what role that might play. Um, I think the other thing is, is thinking about um, what the motivation is behind sort of trolling as, as a very broad category. And I think that that's something that we're, we're still sort of trying to dig into. Um, there, is, there are several scholars. I'm thinking of in particular, someone like um, Whitney Phillips um, who's done an ethnography of trolling and actually works on uh, harassment against journalists now. Um, who talks a lot about sort of the, the through line of, of misogyny and, and the level of anger and the ways in which a lot of the time these forms of abuse is sort of a very explicit policing of what certain marginalized groups can or cannot say. Um, and that oftentimes it's coming from a place of, of intense pain of, of that manner or of that individual feeling wronged personally, feeling like there were um, uh, privileges and opportunities that they didn't necessarily have access to. Um, and in, in those cases, a lot of the time, feminism is sort of to blame for this. Um, and so there's been a lot of discussion about sort of the extent to which this, this behavior is, is kind of motivated by a sort of misogyny noir that is being amplified on the internet.
1: Misogyny noir, that's an interesting term. <laughs> um, I've not heard that one before. Uh, explain to me a little bit more what that means, if you would.
0: Um, that's a good question. I guess it is that it is typically used to refer to um, the a more intersectional understanding of misogyny, that it is not simply... Um, that it is not simply misogyny based off of sex or gender, but it is also oriented around race and ethnicity. So, for instance, we can think about the ways that, um, like, Roxane Gay, for instance, has been targeted for a lot of online harassment. We've seen a lot of um, African-American women journalists, comedians being targeted for online harassment. And so it's a term that sort of attempts to recognize that there are sort of multiple levels of of misogyny that are, are co-occurring at the same
1: time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, all right, I want to move back a little bit to the um, police response or the authority mm-hmm. response um, to this. Um, you mentioned in your blog that – uh, a lot of uh, because the internet is not perceived as real i'm just going to read what you wrote because it's it's interesting to me yet yeah, because the internet isn't seen as real many victims of cyber violence find their experiences are trivialized they are told to simply disconnect their computers turn off their cell phones and i would like to know whether you think that's changing did you indicate did you find any indication in the studies that there's a shift in that or there are some areas that are taking it more seriously my sense is that police departments are probably so overburdened right now that if somebody isn't left bleeding they might just go whoa you know we'll we'll just deal with it we'll put that on the agenda for the next biennium or something is, is, what did you find
0: um i will say that you know they sort of as a rule, and I'm sort of speaking a little bit more from a a U.S. context and then also knowing um, about the South African context, more often than not, the criminal justice system, and especially the police, are not known to be particularly friendly towards um, issues of gender-based violence, and I think that this is most certainly another sort of iteration of gender-based violence, um, sort of in a different form. We know that very rarely are sort of specialized services or trainings offered that would sensitize people towards the issues of GBV. Um, And more often than not, it's sort of a a one-off presentation that happens once a year that everyone is is mandated to go to. Um, So I think if it is happening, it is certainly not happening on a national level. Um, It might be happening on a more localized level, but If it is, it's probably sort of in response to cases that might be emerging. Um, I would say that a lot of the pressure is being placed on sort of specialized lawyers who have sort of taken up some of these issues um, and have really tried to work very specifically with um, police stations in their area to try to create a little bit more sensitization around it. Um, I will say that... um, the UN has sort of announced that there needs to be a greater attention to this issue of cyber violence. Um, but the extent to which that has really trickled down into police stations, I think is, is still pretty minimal.
1: Mm-hmm. What way, in what way in your ideal world after doing your research, what, what would be the ideal police response?
0: Well, so I will also say that um, I'm someone who, having worked with a lot of advocates um, who do not support carceral feminism. Um, and by this, I mean um, not necessarily wanting to invest in necessarily criminalizing these kinds of things. I think that there, there is a debate that is being had about the extent to which um, criminalizing might actually reduplicate harms against marginalized communities um i think i'm not sure if i necessarily would want the police to be more involved i think i think really the first step is for um greater accountability at multiple levels so it is it is both sort of an intervention at um uh, on the platforms, um, I think another thing is that we, one of the biggest sort of barriers to to recognizing this issue as something that should be protected against is the Communications Decency Act, which essentially allows third party platforms to um, post non consensual pornography, um, and and basically call it free speech. And so what I would actually say is the first step for me would be working with survivors and with the lawyers that have a lot more experience with this issue and trying to figure out um, ways that we can really adjust platforms. And and um, I would also honestly say holding companies more accountable because, for instance, a lot of perpetrators who um commit incidents of cyber-stalking, purchase the software that they use to commit that cyber-stalking from local companies. Um, And I think in that case, we have a clear sense of the fact that there needs to be a greater accountability um, for companies and organizations as well. So I would actually start there, personally.
1: Okay. Okay. That is an interesting response, I think because uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm considerably older than you, and I must say that one of the things that just tickles at the back of my, my neck is the loss, mm. of, loss of individuality uh, mm. that we seem to be having. When you're talking about a better solution being the Internet, um, the uh, platforms, the uh, corporations, I appreciate that and I understand it, but there's that little niggling in the back of me. What about the individual? What about that individual? Mm. Um, it, do you see where I'm going with that? Do you see my sense of unease with some of that?
0: In terms of the actual individual support that a, that a survivor might need, you mean?
1: No, I'm talking in, in, uh, as far as responsibility and accountability for mm. behaviors.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, we, we still have to find a way to address violent behaviors. Um, And I think that there are, there are a lot of different models that are being piloted uh, around the world. And, and I think that that is, um, you know, there's a, a professor that I work with, who has been working with survivors of sexual violence for, you know, over 50 years, and one of the questions he posed to me recently is, is can can we end gender-based violence in our lifetime? Um, and I think that that is the question: is is how do we how do we change individual behaviors around around gender-based violence? Um, because we we do have some some great models that are are doing some good work and are and are able to change individual behaviors within a lifetime um but can we do that at a society wide level? Can we do that at a global level? Um, I don't know you'll have to ask it, it my answer changes depending on how optimistic I feel on a given day
1: yeah. <laughs> Well, and you were saying that this professor has, has uh, been doing his work for more than 50 years, and his question was, can we change this in, in our lifetime? And I'm thinking, how old are you? Because I'm, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not seeing it happening anytime <laughs> terribly soon. Um, right. <laughs> perhaps in your lifetime, yeah. my lifetime, I something not <laughs> think so. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that clock ticks. It just keeps ticking. Um, <laughs> one of the final questions that I have for you it regards ethical issues. I found Mm -hmm. when I was reading your materials that that was an interesting point that, shame on me, I hadn't really thought about. When you talk about ethical issues surrounding cyber violence, what are you talking about? Um,
0: Well, I think one of the things is um, how, I think it's something that I think about a lot as someone who is a researcher on gender-based violence. And so the ways that you collect data around gender-based violence, we have to be exceptionally careful that our data methods do not re-traumatize, are not triggering, do not put people in a position where they are um, potentially more vulnerable to violence. Um, And so ethically, we have to figure out particular kinds of ways to gather this data that is not going to reduplicate the harms that people have experienced, um, especially if it means reopening old wounds, but then not offering them solutions. So I think a lot about extractive research, and we absolutely need data to sort of guide evidence-based interventions and policies, but then especially for um issues regarding gender-based violence, a lot of people say that if you're going to be doing research with survivors, you have to make sure that you have mental health care protocols and counseling in place. You have to make sure that you have referrals in place. You have to make sure basically that you're creating a safe space for that person to talk about their experience and ensuring that if they need additional support, you can provide that to them. And I think because Mm -hmm. this is still such a nascent issue, we don't have as many of those referral resources. We don't have as many of those places that we can refer people to. Um, I think a, a sort of flip side of, of the ethics is also how do we do research with perpetrators? What, what kinds of research with perpetrators do we feel comfortable with? I know that this is a conversation that um, other scholars have had who work with perpetrators in prisons or in other contexts. And so it's, it's not only about sort of what are we asking of survey or study participants, but also what are we asking of ourselves in doing this kind of research?
1: Okay. So you're looking at the ethical issues from the standpoint of the researcher?
0: From the researcher, but, but also of what we, are, what we are able to give to, to participants and make sure that we are, um, we're not hurting them in the process of doing that research.
1: Yeah. Do you see any conflict between feminism and using the Internet? Where I'm going here is if we, if we start placing restrictions on Internet use, i.e. responses from trolls, etc., Will that then also lead to restrictions from any other, other users? What brought this to mind is I post on Facebook the Three Women, Three Ways um, speakers. And several months ago, I had a candidate who was running for Supreme Court in Louisiana, and he was running on a feminist ticket. And I thought that was very unique, uh, and so I had him on the show and Facebook pulled it. They pulled it. Mm. And I went, huh, okay. <laughs> All righty. So apparently feminism is now political speech. Um, mm. I don't know. It, the whole thing, and plus, you know, I mean, you can't do anything without realizing that there are repercussions, fallout that you're not even going to see. So I guess what I'm asking is to speculate based on your research on whether any kind of restrictions, uh, policies, uh, interventions that we can come up with that would mitigate cyber violence would then also interfere with other aspects of communication.
0: Well, I guess um, I'm not sure if this quite answers your question, but it's it's something I've been thinking a lot in terms of net neutrality and, and the ways that um, we actually need, we need net neutrality so that marginalized communities are able to mobilize and are able to have a voice on, on the internet. Um, I think that there is a tendency sometimes to say, you know, the internet is garbage or Twitter is garbage um, or that the internet is a wonderful thing. And like the internet is neither good nor bad. It is, it is a, it is a production and a creation of its users um, and, and that the Internet has actually facilitated a, a huge amount of, um, of feminist organizing. I mean, I, you know, we could think about um, the ways that the uh, Women's March was, really began on Facebook um, in the South African context, for instance, Um, there was a hashtag called Total Shutdown that basically led to a mass mobilization that was all facilitated um, online. I think that right now as we're thinking about um, how to deal with the lockdown around coronavirus and getting people access to resources, the internet is really an essential tool. Um, I think that the difference is that oftentimes Abusive behavior masquerades itself behind freedom of speech, and I think that we need to do a little bit more thought parsing out those two things.
1: Thank you. Emma Louise Baki. I can't believe it. I'm looking at the clock, and we're almost out of time. I do very quickly, though, want to ask you, was there something that – you know i obviously i'm just reading your your materials i'm i'm not an expert is there something you think is very important about this topic that i perhaps neglected to ask you um i think
0: so i actually think i this is something that is is occurring i think more frequently now that we are all stuck in our homes um so i think i would just uh, i was having a conversation earlier today with some service providers who have created online hotlines um, to provide services to survivors of gender-based violence who are in lockdown, and that they're actually finding prank callers, so people who are coming in to prank those hotlines. And I think that this just goes to show that this is sort of another, another form of violence, and it's, sort of, it's coming as a surprise to many service providers, which I think goes to show how much work still needs to be done in terms of sort of connecting all of these different digital dots.
1: I agree with you wholeheartedly. It's a fascinating topic. It's a topic that unfortunately is going to affect a lot of us. And uh, interesting, obviously, requires more research down the road. But thank you so much for sharing with us what you learned in your meta-analysis of the current literature. And uh, I hope that in your future, you are going to be continuing to do research along these lines. So thank you. Well, thank you uh, so much. And uh, people can just Google your name and go to the uh, blogs and the research that you have. And so uh, we are glad to be able to share that. So thank you and thank you for listening to Three Women, Three Ways. 18 plus.